All right, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> hey, I love that last song. Um, uh, you know, that, that when the Spirit of God falls, we fall on our knees. And, um, but we believe, uh, we believe that the Spirit of Christ is present with us this morning. Uh, we believe that he's present in our lives, but we also believe that he's present in our worship. Uh, he's present in our f- community, in the body here. Uh, and we are grateful uh, that we get to celebrate uh, the presence of Christ and the reality of who he is. And so we're going to continue in this series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so uh, if, you're, if you're a visitor this morning, great timing, um, by the way, because we're at that little section uh, that Jesus challenges us. And I want you to think about this. He challenges us about lust. And I want you to think about this, um, that if it wasn't important, Jesus wouldn't have talked about it. If it wasn't really important for us, he wouldn't have brought it up. He wouldn't have talked about it. So it must be uh, important to our lives. It must be important to our hearts uh, and our minds because it's put in, in arguably the most famous sermon ever preached, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, a compilation of things that Jesus talked about uh, when he was on a mountainside and there were uh, his disciples are circled around him. He sits down, he begins to teach. The disciples are there, there's a crowd of people there and Jesus begins to talk with them about what it means to be a follower of his, what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus. Jesus. And uh, what we know that from time to time, uh, hard things happen. Uh, hard things happen in, in life. And I was thinking about it this week that I was standing next to a, a car with a, a, a guy who had been a friend of mine for years and years. And um, he, uh, uh, he made this statement to me. He says, I've lost my kids, haven't I? And I said, yeah, I think for now, I think you have. I don't think it has to stay that way, but he, he had been unfaithful and, uh, to his wife of more than 25 years, and uh, I sat in a meeting. We had just left a meeting with two of his kids, a uh, daughter and a son, uh, and, and the daughter had looked at her dad and said, who's supposed to walk me down the aisle now? Who's supposed to walk me down the aisle and, and tell my husband to take care of me, to be faithful to me? You can't do that anymore. And, and then his son said, you were my hero. I wanted to be like you. Now, now what do I do? And he had to sit there and listen to his kids tell him this. Uh, and then as we were leaving, because he, he, his, his response was, can't we just get over this? Can everybody just move on and, and clearly know that he hadn't been just unfaithful to his wife. He'd been unfaithful to his kids. He'd been unfaithful to everybody that trusted him, that knew him. And you kind of, and, and, and I'd known him for a long time, and, and you have to stop and wonder, okay, how did this happen? How, do, how does this happen in our lives? How does this happen to somebody you've known for a, a long time? And, and that's a lot of what Jesus is going to get at this morning in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is, is how this happens in our lives And so we're going to look at Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30, and see what Jesus has to say, not about our behavior, but about our heart. So as as you're preparing, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 5. We're just going to read verses 27 to 30. But before we read this passage, let's pray one more time, all right? 
Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a wonderful time of worship. Thank you for how you meet us here and how faithful you are to us. And so, Lord, now I ask that as we open your word, as we continue our worship by the reading of your word, I ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds again to what you would have for us, Lord. We pray that the words that are said this morning will be honoring to you and that we will receive them, Lord, gratefully because they're your words. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is absolutely committed to your becoming salt and light. He said, you are the salt of the earth, and if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? That, that we're here as followers of Jesus to preserve life, to give flavor to life. And then he made this statement. He said, you're the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill that collectively we become a light that people who are living in darkness can see and be drawn not to us, but to Jesus because we're his reflected light in the world. And so he gave us those two commands that you're salt and you're light, and then he proceeds to tell us how we live that out in the world and what could keep us from being the kind of salt and being the kind of light that, that he wants because here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that you're the hope for the world. And it's just crazy to me, right? I mean, us, seriously? Lord, you know me. I'm, I'm your best shot for the world, um, you're God, you're supposed to be smarter than that, you know, and, and yet here's what he says, he says, you're salt and you're light, you're the, as collective as the church, you're the hope for the world, and here's what it looks like, and then he goes into this in Matthew 5, starting at verse 27, he, you have heard it said, remember we talked about that, you've heard it said that most of the people in the crowd that day couldn't read, and what they knew of scripture is what had been read to them. And so he says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. The seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. Thou shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, uh, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. A thousand years before this, the prophet Samuel had said this, that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And then the religious leaders that, that Jesus was always in conflict with, the Pharisees and the scribes, they knew the Ten Commandments. They knew the Ten Commandments backward and forward. They could tell you the Ten Commandments. And when you looked at their lives and you looked at them, you could see, boy, they live this out. They live out the, the Ten Commandments. But what Jesus is saying is that Jesus is pointing his radar into their hearts and their minds, and he says, yeah, I know that you look good, but your problem isn't a behavior problem. Your problem is a heart problem. 
Your problem isn't about how you look on the outside, but it's about who you are on the inside, that they had a behavior problem, and they imagined that as long as they weren't guilty of the physical act itself, that the commandment had nothing to say to them. And one of their problems was that they read the Ten Commandments and they took them as as individual commandments, but they never read them as a whole. If they had read them as a whole, they would have gotten to 10 and thought how it fit with seven, where it says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet what your neighbor has. Don't covet those things in your heart. It's not just about what you do, but it's about what you covet, what you think about, what you long for, what you look at. And so if they'd read it all, they would have figured that out, but they didn't. Even the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 confesses that that when he understood the word covet, that he began to understand what Jesus was talking about. Jesus is saying they don't have a behavior problem, but they have a heart problem. And the Bible has a word for this. And that that word the Bible uses is sin. That Jesus calls it sin. Sin simply means missing the mark. It means separation from God. It's not so much what we do, but it's a condition that we have on the inside of us that we, that Romans says that we've all sinned and fallen short uh, of the glory of God, that we all share this condition. And it's such a, a word, it's, got, it's a word that's gotten so tainted today because uh, in, in our culture, we, we have tried to become a guiltless culture. Because, you know, having guilt and recognizing sin, it it just doesn't support your self-image. And if you want to have a good self-image, then don't don't feel guilty, don't recognize sin, because that'll make you feel bad. So we've tried to eliminate some of those words from our vocabulary, but Christ says, here's how much I love you. I love you so much that I'm going to tell you the truth, and we all have this condition called sin. It's on the inside, and you can, you can dress it up, and you can clean it up, and you can do whatever, but we all share that condition on the inside, regardless of what we look on the outside. I, I remember these, these two young women coming to North, and, and they, they were so happy, and they were so great, and, and I talked to them, and I, I said, you know, what, what brought you here? And they said, you know, we, we knew that we were sinners, we just had never had anybody tell us how much God loved us. And that's the secret. You see, this is what Jesus wants us to understand. It, it doesn't hurt our self-image to, to acknowledge the fact that we're sinners, that, that we're, as Jesus said in the very first of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you recognize that you're bankrupt uh, without Christ because it's when we recognize that that Christ can come, that we can recognize how much Christ loves us, how much he cares for us, and we finally find out that we are a greater sinner than we ever knew, but we're more loved than we could have ever dreamed, and that's what Christ does for us when we recognize that we're sinners and we find out that Jesus came, uh, he came from heaven, he died on a cross because he loved us, he rose again, he offers us eternal life, not because we're so good, but because he loves us, then some Something begins to transform on the inside of our lives, and God changes us from the inside out. So it's not about how we dress up. It's not about how we try to behave. It's not about how we try to present ourselves to people, but it's about what's happening on the inside of us and how it's coming through our lives, and that's what Jesus is interested in. 
you can behave great, but he really wants to get in your heart. He really wants to get in your mind, and he really wants to transform us from the inside out, that we're amazed that in spite of our love, Christ would love us enough, think enough of us to die on a cross, to suffer humiliation and betrayal so that we might be forgiven. And how do we learn to love others? We really learn to love others. We begin to love others when we when we receive the love that Christ gives us, we know it's not a love that we deserve, but it's a love that he's given us. And he teaches us how to love other people. Well, you know, Jesus isn't saying that it's wrong to find someone attractive, that that's part of being a human being, but the word that he uses to translate love here is epithumeo, and it's, and it, it, it's a word that uh, it means mishandled or misdirected sexual desire. It's a fantasy or an intent. Uh, even if you haven't committed adultery, it's something that happens in your heart and your mind. And Jesus uses really strong language here. Um, I don't know if it sort of strikes you as harsh, but he says it's better to tear your eye out and, you know, and throw it away than to lose your soul to this. Uh, it, it's better to, to take your, cut your right arm off and, and throw it away than it is to lose your soul uh, to lust, to lose your soul uh, to, to your thoughts and, and, and sin in your life. He's saying it's a big deal. It's a really serious deal. It really matters to us. You know, I don't know, what was it, a month or two ago that we talked about this little um, saying that we tell kids about, you know, it's sow a thought, reap an act, sow an act, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, and sow a character and reap a destiny. Do you see how that works in our lives? Uh, that when, when our hearts are, you know, when, when there's sin in our hearts, when our hearts are lustful, when our hearts are covetous, uh, when our hearts aren't right with the Lord and we sow those thoughts, sooner or later those thoughts become acts in our lives, those acts become habits in our lives, those habits become our character and that character then becomes our, our destiny, it becomes who we become and Jesus is saying let's stop it now, let's recognize, let's acknowledge that our own sin, let's acknowledge our own separation from God, our own failure and let's trust him for the results in our life, let's trust the love of Christ and so he says if you're right I offend you or uh, then it's better to, to tear it out. Um, there's not really any great um, you know evidence uh, in terms of why Jesus would say your right eye except that that we know that the right hand was the dominant hand in, in that culture and so if you wanted to extend friendship to someone you would extend your, your right hand um, if you were you know uh, the scripture talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the father and so we know this whole idea of the right hand was the the dominant hand there was something about that and so we, we might assume that from that that the right eye would be the dominant eye but what Jesus is saying to us here is how serious he wants us to take this that this isn't a joke that this isn't just a problem, this isn't just about me, uh, this isn't just something that happens, but this is something God takes very seriously in our lives. And who would have thought, who would have thought that a couple of thousand years later that Jesus knew that pornography would be an $8 billion a year industry in the United States? 
Who, who would have thought that? When Jesus was saying, you know, you say don't, uh, the, the, the seventh commandment says do not commit adultery, but I say that if you even look lustfully uh, at a woman, that it's the same as if you've committed the act. So don't tell me that looking at pornography isn't harmful for you because it's right there in the scripture. Jesus talked about it 2,000 years ago. He warned us about this, that it's not harmless, it's not safe, it's not just my own private thing, uh, but it, it changes our heart and our mind. It, tr- it changes our whole culture. Uh, what we have as a generation of kids growing up who don't know what it's like to have long-term committed relationships. Uh, we have this whole thing now that's kind of come out of the, the hookup generation, they call it, where, where we don't know how to build lasting relationships, where, where kids aren't learning those kinds of things. Uh, and we have all of this stuff going on, and, and we just try to look like everything's okay. And Jesus says, it's not and he says the very thought, uh, the very idea of looking at a woman is the same as doing it because it's coming out of your heart. It's changing how you think. It's affecting your mind. And he's saying this, that if you want to be salt and light, if you want to be who Christ created you to be, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you can't have that stuff in your life. It's got to change. We're just simply not light if we're living that way. And, and I know because um, guys tell me all the time that it's, uh, you know, that it's no big deal, um, that it's just, uh, you know, just something that I do sometimes when I'm bored or just, you know, it pops up and you can't help it, and I just got to tell you, I'm just not buying it. Jesus speaks really specifically. He really teaches us about that. What you look at matters. What goes into your heart, what goes into your mind really does matter. And, I'm, and I apologize, kind of, if you're uncomfortable about this, but it's just, I'm just, I'm just reading the Bible to you, okay? Uh, I didn't, this isn't my idea, but this is what Jesus talks about. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, uh, in some translations, it says causes you to stumble. Um, I, I really think it, it's interesting because the, the Greek word is, is scandalizo, and, it, and it's where we get our word scandal, uh, but this idea of stumbling or this idea of sinning, he's saying if, if you fall over this, if you fall be, because of this, that don't let this take over your life. Um, and imagine how offended the religious leaders were. Imagine how f- offended the fr- Pharisees and the scribes were because they had built this whole reputation and this whole life around looking the best. And Jesus point, looks right into their hearts and says, yeah, you look good on the outside, but there's a problem with your heart. And that was the last thing they wanted some Jewish carpenter to be telling them. But Jesus loves us too much not to tell us the truth. So Jesus' point is, if you think that you're sexually perfect and and have no need of repentance because you've never committed adultery, think again, because it runs deeper in our hearts than that. You know, in the church, it's easy for people to pretend that they don't have a problem because that's to be vulnerable. And who knows if I admitted to that problem, who knows what somebody might say or 
somebody might think about me, but all of us have a problem. Uh, the religious leaders had bought into the idea that they could behave their way into God's favor, that they'd never committed adultery. They could check that one off the list and that God would reward them for their goodness, but they were missing the fact that everything starts in the heart. And so when I say that we all have a problem, that's just simply that we're all sinners saved by grace. And he's saying, this is how I want you to live. This is what it feels. This is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to, to be new in Christ. This is what it means to belong to him. Luke 6, 16, 15 says this, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart for what is exalted among men is an abomination in, in the sight of God. That the scripture talks about this and and again, I know it makes, can make us uncomfortable, but it's, it's sin. And Jesus is taking a look at what is going on in his day. Isn't it interesting that they had the same issues 2,000 years ago that, that we have today? And it's not something that you do because it doesn't hurt anybody, because it does hurt somebody. And I've just sat with too many people, I've sat with too many men uh, who thought it wasn't going to hurt anybody and found out they were wrong. I've sat with too many wives uh, who feel betrayed and crushed because uh, of something their husband's done uh, on the computer, not physically, and, and it does hurt. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 to 13 says this, there, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, don't just assume that you can do this by yourself. Don't just assume that you can stand because that's when we're the most vulnerable to falling. When we think we can do it, when we think that we're strong enough, when we think that we're smart enough, when we think that we're spiritual enough, he's saying depend, we depend on Christ. He, he's our savior, he's our strength, and we, we depend on him. And so then, then he makes this promise to us. He says there's no, temptation that's, there's no temptation that's not common to men. For all of eternity, we've had this issue because of sin. For all eternity, there's been lust in the world. He's saying that, that God has, will provide a way of escape that if we turn to him, he'll give us the strength to be an overcomer. I love uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5, the second half of it uh, says this, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. So I used to sit with high school guys, and, and, and we would have this conversation, and um, I would just say, all right, so here's the deal. You're in the lunchroom, this girl walks by, 10.5 it. So you got to remember, just 10-5 it. Take every thought captive and give it to the Lord. Take every thought captive and give it to the Lord to be obedient to him. To say, Lord, here's the thing. You're more important to me than that thought. You're more important to me than that idea. Years and years ago, I, I was reading this story about a pastor who's a really famous pastor in Los Angeles, Jack Hayford, and, and he talked about the fact that he, he walked... Uh, by a secretary at, at his church and had this thought and he immediately went into his office called his associate pastor confessed it to him and, and said we gotta I, I need I, I, I can't let this go one more second in my life I need to take this thought captive and I, I need your help to do it 
And God blessed his ministry for 40-some years and used him in remarkable ways. Well, here's, here's something that might be helpful for you. How, how many know what the, the five-second rule is? You use the five-second rule? You, yeah, you actually do. You're in the cafe, and you drop your donut hole, right? And, you, and if you can pick it up in less than five seconds, it's good to go, right? So you just pop that baby in your mouth. That's the five-second rule. Well, how, listen to this. Um, <laughs> you know, and it says, that, and I, you know, sorry, but some, it says parents sometimes apply this rule to pacifiers after their first child. It says, um, the history of the five-second rule is difficult to trace. One legend attributes the rule to Genghis Khan, who declared that food could be on the ground for five hours and still safe to eat. Of course, we all know about him. But, in 2000, but a 2016 experiment should permanently debunk the five-second rule. Professor Donald W. Schaffner, a food microbiologist, didn't know there was one, a food microbiologist at Rutgers University reported that a two-year study conducted, um, concluded that no matter how fast you pick up food that falls on the floor, you will pick up bacteria with it. Now, the first thing that I thought of was, who does this stuff? Who does these, you know, like two-year study on dropping a donut hole? The, okay, seriously, but somebody does. And then they write about it, and they get paid for it. It's amazing to me. All right, anyway, I digress. He says, uh, you can check it out for yourself in his journal article, Is the Five-Second Rule Real? Found uh, in always exciting journal of Applied and Environmental Microbiology. It's on my reading list. Yes. Professor Schaffner tested four surfaces, stainless steel, ceramic tile, wood, and carpet, and four different foods, cut watermelon, bread, buttered bread, and strawberry, um, sorry, strawberry gummy candy, uh, and um, I'm pretty sure they're gummy bears. He just needs to get out more. They were dropped from a height of five inches onto surfaces treated with bac bacteria. This, the researchers tested four contact times, uh, less than one second and less than five, less than 30, and then less than 300 seconds. A total of 128 possible combinations of surface uh, food and seconds were replicated 20 times each, yielding 2,560 measurements. Wow. So after those 2,560 drops, they found that no fallen food escaped contamination, leading Professor Schaffner to conclude bacteria can contaminate instantaneously. In other words, they debunked the legendary five-second rule. Now, that's probably not going to change your life at all. But here's my point, that it only takes five seconds. That you, you don't have to look at something for an hour. You don't have to look at something for 30 minutes, but it only takes one look. It only takes five seconds to stain our heart, to stain our mind, uh, to, to begin to unravel what God's been doing in our lives. And it's the reason that Jesus is so specific and so intense when he talks about this because it can do so much damage, not only to us, but to people that we love, to others, that it really does matter. So I have five things that I'd like you to consider this morning, all right? Five things as you think about this idea of lust, if you think about your heart, five things that I'd like you to consider. And the first one is uh, stop making excuses, all right? Let's, let's just be honest enough. Jesus is honest with us. Let's be honest enough to call sin, sin, okay? 
Stop making excuses uh, about it. Um, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that he made us as his workmanship. He created us for a specific role. He says, you are salt and light. You are the best hope for a world that's in darkness. Stop making excuses. The second thing is to examine your heart. Examine our hearts, to be honest with us. Look at my heart. Lord, what do you want to tell me? What are you saying to me? What's going on in my heart? Again, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying, I want all of you. I want you to present yourself, your whole body, your heart, soul, and mind. Uh, that's why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all that you have, your heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything that you got. That's what Jesus wants from us. That's where transformation comes from. The, the third thing is confess and receive forgiveness. Confess and receive forgiveness. Uh, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, that he is able and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. And you know, we're resurrection people. Because the resurrection is true, all the rest of this is true. And Jesus, when he said, if you confess your sin, that he's able and just to forgive us of our sins. So here's what, here's what I believe strongly. That we need to confess our sin and then we need to receive his forgiveness. Because some of us are great at confession. We're just, I, I'm, this is my life. You know, you grow up in the church. I was great at confessing. I was horrible at receiving forgiveness. I'd just confess it, and then I'd carry it around with me everywhere. And Jesus said, I want you to confess your sin, then I want you to receive my forgiveness. The fourth thing is to be accountable to someone. To, to be accountable to somebody. That we live in community. That we can't do this on their own. And so here's, here's my offer, all right? Um, if you don't have anybody that you're accountable to, uh, my email address is landerson at nbcaz.org. Got it? landerson at nbcaz.org. And you can email me. And I'll do this with you. There's a, a, a thing called Covenant Eyes. It's, a, a, um, it's an app or something that you can sign up for. And, and, and I actually have guys that... Uh, I get reports every week on how they're doing, um, what they're looking at on the internet, and, and so I can uh, track that with them. And I have fun with one of my buddies who had a teenage daughter, and I kept going to him saying, I'm so tired of you looking at Seventeen Magazine. They're starting to, you know, but it really wasn't him. But it's Anderson at NBCAZ.org, and if you need some help, I'm, I'm, more than, I'm already doing it for some guys, and I would be happy to have you be... Um, you be, be part, of, part of that with me. But be accountable to somebody. It's why we put such an emphasis on small groups that we do life with people, we walk with people. And then uh, I, I had, uh, I put at Romans 12, 3 on there also, for by grace, the grace given to me, I say to every one of you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, that, that don't just don't fall into the trap that you can do this by yourself, that you can handle this.
And then the last thing is that you are what you think. You are what you think about all day. And uh, uh, Philippians 4, 8 says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, wh- whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, what, um, uh, yep, uh, think about these things. That, what, that we are what we think about all day. What do you think about when you wake up in the morning? What do you think about as you're going to bed at night? What occupies your thoughts? What, what are the triggers of things that cause you to think about things? We are what we think. And, and um, so how, what does God want us to do? He says, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's uh, commendable, whatever's of excellence, anything of worthy praise, he says, those are the things that we should be going through their minds. So here's, here's another thing that you can do. Here's just a little practical thing, okay? It's for free, seriously. Change the tapes in your head. What, what do you think about, then how do you change those tapes? And, and the best way to change the tapes in your mind is with the scripture, And so if you have some things going through your head that you know aren't right, then replace those with scripture that get to know God's word so much so that it's the first thing that pops up, that those are the tapes that play through your head all the time. If you have thoughts that are not of the Lord, then then remind yourself of Philippians 4, 8, where he says, look, here's what I want you to think about. Here's what really matters, and, and uh, replace the, the tapes in your head with God's word, with the scripture. And here, let me just say this too, in fairness, okay, because guys are feeling a little bit picked on, but this is a growing problem with women in our country too, all right? So nobody's exempt from this. So just when you thought you were going to be off the hook, we're, we're all in this together, right? We all need to care for each other. We all need to... Now, here's, here's the last thing, okay, because you might just be feeling bad about this stuff. You might be feeling convicted. That'd be good. Um, you might, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're feeling right now, let me close with this. That there was a young man who couldn't wait for his father to die. And he said, Dad, give me, give me my side of the inheritance. Give me my half of the inheritance right now because I'm going to go party. I want to do what I want to do. And you know the story from Luke 15, the prodigal son. He went out and spent everything he had on prostitutes, on partying, on drinking, all of those things. Everything that, that, that the world had to offer him at that level, at that time, he, he, he did it. And he finally ran out of money and there was a famine in the land and he's feeding the pigs. You know the story. He finally comes to his senses and he says that my father's slaves, my father's servants live better than me. They're not starving. I'm gonna go to my dad and I'm gonna say, Father, forgive me because I've sinned against you and I've sinned against God and would you just hire me on as a servant? And, And the story, if you remember, is he's walking to his dad and he's rehearsing these lines. Father, forgive me. I've, you know, I've sinned against you and God and and I don't deserve to be here, but just hire me as a servant his father sees him from a long way off you remember the story and he pulls up his toga and he starts running toward his son now I want you to understand that unless you were looking for your son unless you were seeking him unless you were waiting hoping that he was going to come you wouldn't have seen him he wouldn't have seen him behind a closed door he wouldn't have seen him from inside his house he wouldn't have seen him from any place else but the father was looking for his son while the son is sort of coming to his senses and 
been saying, man, what have I done? The father has been waiting for him. He's been, he's been seeking him. And when he saw his son at a distance in his excitement and in his love, he ran toward him. And as his son starts to get his little speech out, his dad grabbed him in a bear hug, weeping. And he said, bring sandals for his feet and a ring for his finger and a robe for him that my son that was lost is found. And that's the message that Jesus wants you to have this morning. It's not a message about how bad you are. We get that. It's a message about how greatly loved you are. And that if you've gotten lost in all this stuff, that the Father is looking. He's waiting for you. And he wants to embrace you. He's waiting for you to come back so that he can put a ring on your finger and sandals on your feet and a robe around your shoulders. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. You love us so much, I can't. I'm amazed sometimes, Lord, because I know that, I know in my heart I don't deserve that. But Lord, you, you are amazing. Your love is overwhelming. Thank you, Lord, that you love me so much to be honest with me. That it's not about how well I can fake it or it's not about how well I look. It's about who, what's on my, in my heart and what's in my mind. And Lord, our heart's desire is to be salt and light, and so we ask that you'd forgive us where we need to be forgiven. Strengthen us, Lord, where we need to be strengthened. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And we'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.